Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. Let's listen now to the Word of God. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, as we're continuing to meditate our way through verses 21 through 31, let me remind us of what Paul says in verses 23 through 25. He says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Then he goes on to speak of those who've been saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. And we'll be continuing our way through that. But notice, once again, Paul is referring here to the grace of God that brings salvation by way of the redemption. It comes through the redemption. How are we saved from sin? It comes through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, it comes through Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. We considered that last time. That He is our kinsman redeemer. Flesh of our flesh. Bone of our bone. Fully God. Fully man. He has paid the ransom. He has paid the debt. He has set the captives free. He has endured 
the punishment that we deserve. He has fulfilled the precepts that we failed to obey. He has died. He has risen. He's done it all. It is finished through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And in verse 25, as we continue our way through the text, we see that God Himself has set forth Jesus Christ as a propitiation by His blood through faith. God has set forth His Son as a propitiation by His blood through faith. My friends, the greatest threat to humanity today is not what many are talking about. It's not the political issues, the cultural debates that are constantly swirling around us. The greatest threat to humanity today is not climate change. It's not the Great Reset. It's not nuclear war. It's not gun violence. It's not uh, Russia or China or woke culture or anti-woke culture. It's not Republicans. It's not Democrats. Uh, The fact of the matter is that the greatest threat to humanity today is the wrath of Almighty God. Whatever threats you or I may perceive in any of the things that I just mentioned, these threats are minuscule. They are nothing compared to the infinite wrath of Almighty God. The God whom the Scripture presents to us in Psalm 7, verses 11 and 12, as a God who is angry with the wicked every day. A God who hates sin. Who brings judgment against sinners. And His wrath burns like a furnace every day. It describes His wrath as one who has uh, taken an arrow and set it in His bow and pulled the string back and aimed it at the faces of His enemies. The wrath of God is as infinite as God is. We speak of God's love as boundless and infinite because it is the love of Almighty God. But in the same way, the wrath of God is boundless and infinite because it is the wrath and anger of Almighty God. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 36, that this wrath of God abides on all who do not believe in Him. We're told, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, the wrath of God in Scripture can refer to the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 Jesus who saves His people from the wrath to come in eternity. Absolutely, that is the case. A hundred people in this world die every minute. And most of them are ushered into a lost eternity in hell. But the wrath of God is something that also appears in this life, in this world. It actually abides on all who are not in Christ by faith. The wrath of God. This is the danger. This is the threat. This is what we ought to be focusing our attention on as citizens of this nation, as individuals in this world. This is the greatest threat. We're told in Ephesians 2, verse 3, that there are those uh, who conduct themselves in the lusts of their flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and who are by nature children 
of wrath. He says that's what these believers in Ephesus used to be, just as the others. So everybody else by nature is a child of wrath, is one who stands under the abiding wrath of God and who is in danger of the wrath that is to come. Hebrews 10 verse 31 tells us that we ought to beware if we've heard the Gospel and we've rejected it. If we've grown up in the church and we haven't received this Gospel, we've ignored it. He says if you didn't heed the words of Moses, you were put to death. How much more for those who trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God. He says they will receive the wrath and indignation that is due to God's adversaries and uh, frighteningly, it says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A hundred people every minute. Many of them falling into the hands of the living God. Not in the sense of Jesus Christ on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. Not in the sense that believers find perfect security and peace knowing that underneath are the everlasting arms, but rather falling into the hands of an angry God. This is the greatest threat to humanity today. John the Baptist warned his audience to flee from the wrath to come. The Apostle Paul, at the beginning of the epistle to the Romans, which we're studying this morning, he says that in fact the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. All ungodliness. Every sin. Any sin. It provokes the wrath of God and God is revealing that wrath. He's revealing that wrath in His judgments throughout history. He's revealing that wrath through the preaching of His Word right now and through this epistle to the Romans which gives us our only hope of deliverance from the wrath to come. According to Paul, there's, there, there is hope, but there's only one hope. There's only one way that you and I can be delivered from this great threat against our temporal and eternal well-being. And that hope of deliverance is propitiation. Propitiation. And you say, well, what does that word mean? People don't use that word in our culture. Well, they should because it's a very important word. This word summarizes what the Lord Jesus Christ has done to save His people from the wrath to come. To deliver His people out of of a state, out of a condition where the wrath of God is abiding on them as children of wrath and to bring them into a condition, into a state of peace with God. Propitiation. We see this in our text, verse 25, that this redemption, this deliverance that is in Christ Jesus comes by way of this propitiation. God has set forth His Son as a propitiation. Propitiation. What does this word mean? Well, it it means to satisfy and appease the wrath of God. In other words, to so satisfy God's just wrath and hatred against sin and against sinners, to so satisfy it and appease it that the wrath is turned away 
It's a turning away of God's wrath. The Lord Jesus Christ throughout His ministry when people would ask Him for a sign from heaven to validate His ministry as if He didn't do enough signs and wonders on the earth. But the skeptics, the unbelievers, they're always asking for more. They're always wanting more evidence. And the Lord Jesus Christ from time to time would say to them in response, I'm not going to show you a sign from heaven. I will point you to the sign of Jonah. The prophet Jonah. And He says it in the same way that Jonah was cast into the sea and swallowed by that great fish and remained in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and then He was coughed up onto the beach. In the same way, the Son of Man would be put to death and on the third day would rise again. He uses this illustration from the life of the prophet Jonah. But I want, I want to read for you an episode early in the book of Jonah which corresponds to what our Lord says is a picture of His death. That when He was cast into that sea, it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could look at many passages, especially in the Psalms, where the death of Christ is compared to being surrounded and engulfed in the waters of judgment. But Jonah chapter 1, verse 11, uh, Jonah has sought to run away from God and from God's calling to go preach to the, the sinners in Nineveh, preaching repentance and salvation. He doesn't want to do that. So he's running from God. He's on a ship headed for Tarshish. Boys and girls, most of you probably familiar with this story. And as he's sleeping in the bottom of the boat, there's a great storm that the Lord sends upon the ocean. And so the, the, the sailors who are in the midst of this storm are panicking and they're trying to get everybody to pray to, to whatever God that they pray to. And eventually it becomes clear to them that it's because of Jonah that God has sent this storm. And you, you look at verse 11, then they said to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. See, this is a representation of the wrath of God against sin. And my dear friend, if you're outside of Christ, it's only a matter of time before your boat capsizes and you are in the, the waters of judgment, drowning like Pharaoh under the wrath of God. And there's this storm that's threatening these sailors. These sailors are not concerned at this very moment with politics. They're not concerned with sports. They're not concerned with their finances. They're concerned with surviving this storm that is going to take their lives at this very moment. And we ought to be like that. We ought to take seriously the wrath of God that threatens humanity, that threatens us. And so they say, what should we do, Jonah? And he says, verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land. So he says, cast me into the sea and the sea will be calm. This will appease God. This, this will cause the storm of God's anger to be set at a calm and a peaceful condition. But they don't want to hear that. 
Notice they resist it, as sinners often do. When they hear the Gospel, when they hear that Jesus has been cast into the sea of God's wrath, He's endured and drank down and experienced, as it were, the lake of fire that is reserved for all who stand outside of Christ. Uh, They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear propitiation. They don't want to hear this Gospel. And so these, these men, these sailors, they're rowing hard to return to the land but they could not. My friend, you can row. You can expend and exert yourself. You can, you can furiously look for alternatives. And, and, and at the end of the day, it's a futile exercise. But they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. It was unavoidable. The only way the wrath of God would be appeased is throwing Jonah into the sea. And once they get that straight, and once they put their trust in the fact that if Jonah is thrown into the sea, the sea is calm. We're told, verse 15, they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Our Savior says this is a picture of the Gospel. This is a picture of His saving work. This is propitiation. He's cast, as it were, into the lake of fire, enduring hell's fury on the cross. He endures and tastes death for all of His people. Jesus Christ is the propitiation who appeases God's wrath and gives us peace with God. And that storm of wrath that rages against you, that abides upon you, is replaced with peace and with calm and with acceptance. See, propitiation does not merely involve satisfying God's wrath, appeasing God's wrath, turning away God's wrath in a negative sense, but it also secures God's favor and acceptance. You can see this in these sailors, by the way. The first thing they do after they've been saved from drowning is they worship God. They come into God's presence. Now, we could debate exactly how they worship God and and on what basis they knew how to offer a sacrifice. But the point is there. The point is made. They feared the Lord and they, they came into His presence. And my friends, that is what propitiation does. Jesus, through His work on the cross, has purchased, has procured, has secured God's favor and acceptance. We see it pictured as well in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. After the flood, there's another picture of God's wrath as uh, pictured as the waters of judgment which drowned humanity in the wrath of God. But in Genesis 8, verse 21, Noah gets out of the ark with his household Similar to those sailors, they get, he gets out and what does he do? He takes of the clean animals and offers up a sacrifice and we're told that that sacrifice that he offered, as he was by faith looking to the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ to come, that that sacrifice was a sweet-smelling aroma unto the Lord. A sweet-smelling aroma. In Hebrew, wrath is something that takes place in the nostrils. Hebrew is a very uh, concrete and organic language. And so 
when it speaks of anger and wrath, whether it's human wrath or God's wrath, it, the, the word that's used, the idea, the concept of it is the flaring of the nostrils. Uh, you see here, though, the counterpart to that, that when there's been propitiation, when there's been a sacrifice uh, that appeases God's wrath, it also becomes a sweet-smelling aroma in His nostrils and it gains His favor and His acceptance. Whereas God's nostrils were flaring with wrath, now they are enjoying the beautiful aroma of this propitiation. And my friends, when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, we're told in Matthew 27, verse 51, that miraculously, the, the veil that separated the priests in the holy place from the most holy place in the temple, that veil was torn from top to bottom. That when the flesh of our Savior, as it were, was torn asunder, uh, this barrier between God's people and God's comforting and gracious presence was torn down. A new and living way into God's presence was opened. And and the reason for this is that God smelled the aroma of Christ's perfect sacrifice and His wrath was propitiated and it was a sweet-smelling aroma and He opened the way for His people to come and receive this favor, this acceptance. Jesus at His baptism heard the voice of God the Father and we're told that God the Father declared, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Paul in Ephesians 1.6 applies that to all who put their trust in Christ. That we are accepted by the Father in His beloved Son through this redemption, through this propitiation. We are filled with the aroma of Christ. We come into the presence of God and we, we just... Remind God of His Son. He smells, you know, we're told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they came out of the fiery furnace, there was not even the smell of smoke upon them. My friends, every believer, when they come to the presence of God in prayer before the throne of grace, we have the aroma of Christ saturating us. Propitiation. Securing God's favor and acceptance. In fact, this word propitiation is a Greek word that is used in the Greek copy of the Hebrew Bible that would have been used in Paul's day. It's called the Septuagint. And so this Greek Old Testament version would use this word propitiation as a translation for the mercy seat. So in the Greek Old Testament Bible, when they would refer to the mercy seat, which was the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant, where they would sprinkle the blood on the Day of Atonement. This lid that was also referred to in a sense as God's throne. He dwells between the cherubim, the angels represented there on the the cover of the ark. Uh, This mercy seat, this throne of grace, we're told that, uh, or or we're we're given this word propitiation as a translation. And, And how meaningful that is for us as we reflect upon what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Because inside of that Ark of the Covenant, Moses placed the Ten Commandments. Remember the first copy of the Ten Commandments, he dashed to pieces. Uh, No doubt moved by the Holy Spirit as a public spectacle 
to confront the people for making the golden calf. He dashes them to pieces because they had broken them. And yet, God had him uh, take up another copy of the Ten Commandments, these tablets of stone. And what did they do with those? Well, we don't want them to be broken, so we put them inside the Ark of the Covenant, under the lid, under the mercy seat, to keep God's law, to keep it intact, to keep it from being broken. And my friends, the Lord Jesus Christ, in His propitiation, in His work of redemption, has done exactly that. This this mercy seat, this Ark of the Covenant, this placing of the Ten Commandments in safekeeping inside of that holy box, my friends, this is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done. He has perfectly kept the law of God intact on behalf of His people. But of course, His people have sinned. His people have broken His covenant. His people have broken the Ten Commandments countless times. And so once a year, the Lord appointed that the high priest would go into the most holy place with the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. Year by year, as a testimony of the suffering and death that Jesus Christ would also have to accomplish to propitiate God's wrath, to bring about God's favor and acceptance uh, to be enjoyed by all of God's people. Propitiation. Now, this propitiation required the shedding of Christ's blood. Paul is very clear about this. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. By the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we reflect upon the biblical account of our Savior's death, we find that it's inescapable and unavoidable that there is blood. There's blood everywhere in the account of our Savior's death. We have liberal theologians that want us to view Jesus as a mere teacher. They want to take the focus away from Paul's emphasis on the blood and on the cross. But my friends, without the blood, there is no Gospel. If all you have is Jesus teaching principles of peace and joy and love and loving your neighbors yourself and keeping the golden rule, my friends, you don't have anything. You don't have a Savior. You don't have Jesus. You, you have nothing. You have less than nothing. Paul says the only way for you to be saved from the wrath of God abiding on you and the wrath of God to come is by His blood. You can't get away from the blood. Yes, it's gruesome. In the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood as he contemplated the cup of wrath that he was to drink in his suffering and death. We're told that in the midst of his various uh, legal trials and ecclesiastical trials among the Jews and among uh, Pilate and the Romans, that on various occasions he was beaten with fists and with rods no doubt causing blood to be spilling, oozing forth from his face. We're told that he was scourged with the Roman cat of nine tails. That's what they would have used to scourge him in Pilate's courtroom. And that whip had nine strands and there were embedded in it uh, shards of glass and sharp pieces of bone. And so they would have some guy, probably a very muscular individual, would take that scourge, that whip, 
and would just lash and lacerate the back of the Lord Jesus. It would stick in his back and it would rip it out. And, and who knows if it always hit the target. Maybe it hit part of his face. Maybe we don't know. Uh, but there was blood that was everywhere. Uh, and then they put the crown of thorns on his head. Blood running down his face. They nailed his hands and feet to the wooden cross. Blood, my friends. And even at the very end, the, the soldiers, to prove that he was dead, stuck that spear in his side. And John the Apostle says that, that he testifies to the truth of this, that blood and water flowed from the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. This propitiation required that blood. It required blood because we're told in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And this blood, my friends, is highly anticipated throughout the Bible. It's unmistakable. Without the blood, you don't even have a Bible. I mean, you, you basically have to get out your scissors like Thomas Jefferson if, because the blood is everywhere. God, when He threatened Adam and Eve, if they ate the forbidden fruit, He threatened them with death. And then we're told in Genesis chapter 3 that the Savior who would redeem His people from that death, from that curse, that this seed of the woman, this Redeemer, would crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would strike his heel. What happens when a serpent strikes your heel? There's blood. There's blood. We're told then that when Adam and Eve believed this promise, and there's evidence of that later in the chapter, Genesis 3, that God took animal skins, no doubt having killed an animal, and then He clothes them in the skins of the animal whose blood was shed. And then He puts them out of the garden. And to keep them from re-entering into the garden, He puts an angel there with a flaming sword saying essentially that in order to get back into My presence, there must be the shedding of blood. If you're going to try to get back in there, this sword is going to pierce through you. It's a threat of bloodshed. And it's, of course, a picture of what Jesus was to do for us. That He suffered. Zechariah chapter 9, I think it is, tells us that uh, the, the Father caused His sword to awake against the shepherd and against the Savior in that way. To make that new and living way back into the presence of God. But we're told that Abel followed suit with this idea of slaying an animal. And he offered up to God slain animals shedding their blood as a testimony to His faith in the Savior who was to come. Genesis 4, verse 4. And His offering by faith was accepted. We saw in the case of Noah, when his family gets out of the ark, what does he do? He sacrifices, he sheds the blood of these clean animals, offers it up to God as a propitiation or as a sign thereof. We know that God prefigured the death of Christ when He commanded Abraham in Genesis 22 to offer up His Son as a sacrifice, to shed the blood of His Son with the knife that Abraham had and offer Him up as a burnt offering to the Lord. And what happened? Eventually, Abraham obeys, but the Lord stops him at the last minute and provides a ram in the thicket whose blood is shed in place of Abraham's one and only 
Son. We see this in the Passover. God having passed over the sins of His people, and this was signified by the placing of the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts of God's people when God came through Egypt to strike dead the Egyptians. What was it that saved Israel from the wrath of God against their sin? It was the blood. God says, I'll see the blood and I'll pass over your sins. As I mentioned already on the Day of Atonement, once a year the priest would take the blood from the sacrifice of a particular goat and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat as a sign of God's well, as a sign of Christ's atonement, which was to come. And in Leviticus, we're told something that's very interesting. Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So he says the life is in the blood And atonement requires a giving up of that life, a shedding of that blood, an emptying of those veins. And he says it makes atonement for the soul. Clearly, the Old Testament, we could go through numerous other passages throughout the the writings and throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, again and again stressing that without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement, there is no remission of sins. This was a highly anticipated blood. This is precious blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Peter says, previous verse, he says, you weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead. My friends, understand this. The blood we're talking about is the blood of God. You can look that up in Acts chapter 20. I think it's verse 28. The church of God which He purchased with His own blood. This is the blood of God. It's the blood of the second person of the Trinity according to the human nature which He brought into union with His divine nature at the Incarnation. This is the blood of one who is God. This is precious blood of one who was foreordained to save sinners from before the foundation of the world. This blood is precious. I just want you to think for a moment about the incarnation. The Word of God, the eternal Word by whom the worlds were made has become flesh. God has manifested Himself in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. That in itself blows our minds. That we could one day look face to face into the eyes of an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God who is spirit, and yet according to that human nature that He has mysteriously, amazingly, miraculously brought into union with His divine nature, one person with two distinct natures, we could look into the eyes of God in the person of a man, in the the nature of a man rather. Face to face. 
It's unbelievable. And yet, through Him, we believe it. But this is the blood of that God-man. This is the blood of the eternal God who has become man and we as a human race crucified Him, shed His blood, despised Him, rejected Him, found nothing attractive in Him whatsoever. Think about that. This is the blood of that Almighty God in human flesh. How precious. It's truly unique. We use the word unique in so many different ways. But this is unique. This is, this is God in the flesh. This is precious blood. As the, as the hymn says, it is blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. God with us. Can you think about that? Have you ever pondered the blood of God being spilled to the earth by sinful men? Precious blood. How could they have done that? But that's what we do every time we take it for granted. Every time we don't exalt that blood, believe that blood, rest in that blood, take that blood seriously, we trample it underfoot. It's a precious blood. It's a blood of sprinkling, we're told. Hebrews 12, verse 24, which we read in our call to worship, says that, Every time we gather together for new covenant worship, we come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. We're at the footstool, but we're worshiping in communion with the throne in heaven. The heavenly Jerusalem, where there's an innumerable company of angels. Not saying there aren't angels here now. Uh, We think there probably are based upon the Scriptures. However, In heaven, certainly, an innumerable company of angels, the general assembly and church of the firstborn registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, who manifests His justice and His glory in heaven above all other places. We come to the spirits of just men made perfect. The saints made perfect in holiness who await the resurrection, dwelling in their disembodied state in heaven. We come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and we come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And I don't think this is speaking of Abel's blood sacrifice. I think it's probably speaking of when Abel was murdered by his brother Cain, and God told Cain that the blood of Abel, your brother, is crying out from the ground, crying out for justice and wrath, and vindication. But we're told that this blood of Christ is a blood of sprinkling. That blood of sprinkling that was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Old Testament. That blood of sprinkling that Moses sprinkled on the people. And my friends, this blood of sprinkling speaks a better word than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for wrath and justice. That's a good word. But this blood cries out that justice has been satisfied. That righteousness has been fulfilled through the perfect work of redemption by Jesus Christ. Through the shedding of His blood. Through His fulfilling of the law. Through His death and resurrection. This blood cries out mercy upon all who claim it by faith. It sprinkles them clean. 1 John 1.7, it's the blood that cleanses us from all sin. 
Zechariah 13.1 says that the Lord would open up a fountain. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Understand, the purpose of the shedding of this precious blood is the cleansing of guilty sinners. You don't have to qualify to be cleansed by this blood in some way where you have to meet a certain standard. This fountain that has been opened up from the pierced side of our Savior, the blood and water that cleanse and atone for sin, this fountain filled with the blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins is designed for sinners. It is designed for those who are filthy, those who are unclean. In fact, it's only designed for people who come recognizing that they're filthy and recognizing that they are unclean. But it is designed for cleansing, for sprinkling. So when we come to the presence of God in worship, we come to the throne of grace in heaven by faith in our worship service. We come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. My friends, we must also come to the blood of sprinkling and we must believe and be cleansed and understand that's why He shed His blood. As a fountain for cleansing sinners from uncleanness and filthiness. But this is also a blood of consecration. You can read in Exodus 29, verses 20-22, through 22, that when the Old Testament priests were ordained, when the sons of Aaron were consecrated and commissioned as priests, they would kill the ram of the consecration. And they would take the blood of that animal and they would sprinkle it upon the, the right earlobe and I think the thumb and the big toe of these priests. Recognizing that even in their holiest service to God as priests, that they were not hearing and obeying God as they ought. That their hands were guilty of sin. Stained with blood as it were. In need of atonement. In need of redemption. Their feet were swift to rush into evil. Even these holy priests needed blood atonement. Needed the sprinkling of blood to consecrate them. And to set them apart to do this work on behalf of God. So as part of the consecration, they were sprinkled as a testimony of their need for redemption and atonement, but also to set them apart. And in Exodus 24, all the people were sprinkled with blood as an act of consecration. When they took on their lips God's covenant, when they said, all that the Lord has said we will do, Moses sprinkled them. Sprinkled the book of the covenant. Sprinkled the people of the covenant. He was, the, the blood was just being sprinkled in every different direction to consecrate the people of God unto the covenant obedience that they had promised in the Lord. This is a blood that when you have it sprinkled upon you to cleanse you from sin, it also consecrates you to serve the Lord. Hebrews chapter 9 says this explicitly. Hebrews 9 verse 11, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So he, he's going into the most holy place in the heavenly temple, as it were. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once for all, 
having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, listen, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, He's saying, how much more shall it cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So it's not just forgiveness, it's consecration. To serve the Lord. Just like those priests, just like the Israelites in Exodus 24, when you believe and when this blood of sprinkling is sprinkled upon you by the Holy Spirit at your conversion, it consecrates you. It consecrates you the end of Hebrews in the doxology or the benediction however you want to classify it Hebrews 13 20 we're told now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. So he's saying it's the blood of the everlasting covenant that makes you complete in every good work to do His will. It's a blood of consecration. And my friends, we need to think about this when we consider a proper response to the blood of Christ. It's not just faith. It's faith. Paul says it's through faith that we receive this propitiation, but it's not only faith. Faith works itself out in love. Faith is always accompanied by repentance. Faith walks in obedience. Faith desires to be consecrated and to do all that the Lord has commanded and to strive to that end. When faith looks at the blood of Christ, faith is motivated Faith is motivated, my friends. In the way that only Thomas Watson could put it, he says if, if Christ shed His blood, if He gave up His blood for your salvation, you should be willing to sweat for it. You should be willing to perspire. You should be willing, if He gave up His blood, you should be willing to give up your sweat that you may walk in that salvation, that you may work out that salvation. Not saying work for it to earn it, but saying it's been given to you, now respond to it. Walk in it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Isn't this what Paul is saying in Hebrews 12? Verse 3, For consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. He's putting them to shame. He's saying, if you look at the, the whole context here, he's saying Jesus despised the shame. He endured the, the cross. He shed His blood. And now you as a believer who have received that salvation, you're sitting back. You're, you're on the couch changing channels rather than changing your life and obeying His commandments. And when sin, when temptation comes into your life and when a besetting habitual sin comes into your life, rather than resisting it to the point of bloodshed, saying, 
Jesus shed His blood for me, I would even shed my blood in seeking to overcome sin. Why do you think the martyrs of old gave up their lives for the name of Christ? It was to avoid sinning. Yes, it was avoiding a specific sin, denying the name of Christ, but ultimately, they would rather die than sin. This is the mindset. This is the attitude that the blood of Christ consecrates the people of God unto. That we would resist sin even to bloodshed. Now, I'm not making that point to... I mean, listen. It's difficult for us sometimes to envision ourselves giving up our lives for the faith, giving up our lives to avoid sinning. We understand that. We have to trust in God to give us the grace. But I'm saying, if God's people are expected to shed blood in striving against sin, okay, then I think we need to raise the bar. I think we need to raise the bar. If you're struggling with a sin, you should be doing anything and everything. Don't tell me about convenience. Don't tell me about convenience. Don't tell me, oh, I can't make this adjustment. I can't make that adjustment. Paul is saying, Christ is saying, that if the One who saved you shed His blood for you, ought you not to be willing to shed your blood in striving against sin, to hate sin that much, to cut off your right hand, pluck out your right eye, do whatever it takes to overcome sin. My friends, the beauty of the Gospel is that This blood makes us zealous for good works. This blood took a a, a sinful, wicked man, the Apostle Paul, and gave him that zeal for obedience to God, even to the point of the shedding of blood. This is a blood of consecration. It's a blood of intercession. Uh, We'll pick this theme up this evening, but let me conclude by pointing out that this is a blood of intercession. This is the blood that's sprinkled on the mercy seat. Let's not lose that. Let's not lose that. 1 John chapter 2 tells us, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And that's the emphasis we've been making here. That's the point we've been making. So that you may not sin. God is light. In Him is no darkness at all, John says. If we claim to have fellowship in that light, but we're walking in darkness, we're walking in patterns of sinful anger, lust, uh, sins with our lips, sins with our hearts, sins with our hands and feet. If we're walking in darkness, then we are liars when we say we have fellowship with Him. So he's writing that we would not sin. He understands this blood that cleanses is a blood that consecrates. And He's urging us to to avoid sin at all costs. But He says, well, He says and, because He's expecting that we think He's going to say but, but He says and. And. There's no but about avoiding sin. There's no but. But there is an and. And. If anyone sins. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have this propitiation. We have this blood that speaks a word of mercy and comfort. Indeed, we have the One who shed His blood, who is an advocate. We have an advocate 
with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a defense attorney. We have the one who says it is finished, the one who intercedes and stands at God's right hand as we speak, and who is living evidence that our sins have been punished, that the law has been satisfied, that God's wrath has been turned away, that God's favor and acceptance have been secured. He is an ever-living Savior and, and witness to this propitiation. My friends, we need to take these things to heart. Yes, we ought to avoid sin at all costs, but at the same time, let us know that when we do sin, we have an advocate. His blood cleanses us from every sin. We simply need to come to Him and confess our sins, and He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're told, I'm just going to read these and then we'll be done. Hebrews 2.17, In all things He had to be made like His brethren that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. Your battle against sin is not hopeless. You have a helper. You have a merciful high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted. And Hebrews 9, verse 24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus Christ is in heaven right now, dear believer, for you. And that guarantees, that's the anchor of your soul. You can't see the anchor. It's in the ocean. You can't see the Savior. He's in heaven. But He is your anchor. And He is your redemption and your salvation. And you can put your trust in Him. Let's take this up later this evening. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for such a great salvation, such a great redemption, such a great propitiation. And anticipating what is yet to come, we thank You that You are the one, Father, who has set Him forth. That it is not as though He twisted Your arm to give us acceptance. But You called Him. You sent Him. And we can rest in your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.